Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Oh, I woke up this morning with my mind, and it was stayed on freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind, and it was stayed on freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind, and it was stayed on freedom. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This is a call, says Gretchen Haley. This is a call to weep, to rage, to raise our voices, to get real with the words and the wishing for the world to look different, for the breaking to stop, the healing to hold. This is a call to courage, to let in all the headlines and to know them as family, our brother fleeing Ukraine, our teenage cousin wondering, wandering their, I'm sorry, wondering their worth in Texas, our frightened friend watching the Supreme Court in Mississippi, and also our uncle in Michigan unsure who to trust. This is a call to hear each other in the one more thing that has tipped our days over or has saved us from the brink, brought us back from the edge or let us go finally surrendering in the mystery. This is a call to praise the presence of partners who will greet us in rooms on Sunday mornings and in the streets when the siren calls partners who will bake bread and set the tea kettle to boil and sit down for long sighs and deep belly laughter. This is a call to gratitude, that we are not alone, that we are part of a great history of partners who have promised to go the way of love, that we can travel these days together and remind each other of all this beauty. This is a call to worship. Welcome, welcome and welcome back. And good morning to you. Thank you, good morning. Good morning. Yes, it's good to hear. One time somebody said good morning to me in Minnesota, this was in Minnesota, this was a couple months ago, said, said good morning to me so well that it changed my whole day. <laughs> good morning! Oh, okay. <laughs> and I did. If you're here for the first time, or if you're here and you've lost count of the number of times, or never even began to count, we welcome you and we welcome you to this warm circle. In this church community, we believe in a love that will not let us go, a love that takes shape in this world through the hands and the hearts of all creation. We are born each whole 
and worthy. You and you and you are enough. And together, we are a powerful force for liberation, for the unshackling of all life from injustice and the bringing of compassion and joy in this world. I invite you, come. Let us journey together to share and create the stories of life. We welcome you along the journey, and we begin this journey with the lighting of the chalice cup and its flame. The chalice cup was designed for the Unitarian Service Committee in World War II. The chalice symbol was placed in the windows of the Unitarian Service Committee so that people would know that there, inside, was safety from persecution, was safety from injustice. There were people who were looking out for them. And now, in the news all over the world, we must wonder for our kindred in Ukraine. We must wonder for our kindred in Detroit. We must wonder for our kin all over this great earth of ours. Where is the sign for them of safety? Where is the sign for justice? We believe if we work hard enough, we can be part of that sign and that manifestation. So let's do the work and let's begin it with the light of peace, the light of our chalice cup. Beatrice, will you help us? And while Beatrice is lighting our chalice flame, I invite you to say the words of our covenant along with me. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Thank you. Whoever you are, come, yet again come. Ours is no caravan of despair. In fact, it's full of joy. And joy is the material of liberation and freedom and love and life. Breathe with me and let us breathe in this time of community together. I'm feeling a little weepy this morning. That's okay. Tears are okay here. Congregation, each week when we gather, we make time for prayer, for meditation. We make time to extend the care of this congregation. Care is at the heart of this community and so many communities that gather around principles of faith and liberation. And so I invite you 
to come into that space of prayer, come into that space of meditation. Find your feet, find your seat. Feel yourself connected to the earth. Let's settle into this space. Letting our shoulders drop, roll back. Letting the pew hold us up. coming into this time and space as we extend the care of this congregation. Spirit of life, spirit of love. God of my ancestors, this week, the words of that Poet and prophet Marvin Gaye rang in my head and heart, giving voice to my prayers. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know, we know that we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, Father, we don't need to escalate. War is not the answer for only love can conquer hate. Talk to me, people. Talk to me so that we can see what's going on. Holy One, what is going on? What is going on? War in Ukraine. Three more cops found guilty. Votes on strikes. COVID doing whatever it is that COVID is doing. That is some of what's going on. But, but what is going on? Ancestor Frederick Douglass taught us that there must be struggle for power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. We may not crave struggle, few do, but we are surrounded by it. May we crave justice more than a negative peace that tacitly condones all manner of violence. Holy One, may we be clear that our work is not to be peaceful in the face of violence, but to organize and agitate and foment resistance at every level that we can reach 
so that the world might finally put an end to all of this nonsense that's going on. And remember that liberation is built not through the avoidance of our power, but through its strategic, skillful, and deliberate use. Congregation, what is going on? There are far too many of you crying. There are far too many of you dying. Yeah. Yeah. You know we've got to find a way. Yeah, you do. Find a way to bring some love in here today. So let us bring some love here today. I invite you to share aloud or hold in your heart those names you would lift in worship this morning, those names you would surround in the care of this congregation. And we hold all those in Ukraine as they resist, as they fight to hold on to their liberation. And we pray. We pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that joy break through, that truth be told, and that love make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so, and amen. Spirit of life, come unto me. Sing in my heart all the stirrings of compassion. Blow in the wind, rise in the sea, move in the hand, giving life the shape of justice. Roots hold me close, wings set me free. Spirit of life, come to me, come to me.
Oh, what's going on? A fantastic song, a prophetic song, a song for today. Amen. Now, for many years, this was the only month that I got invited to preach at UU churches. For many, many years. I often wondered why it was in February. Why not May? September? June? Of course, I knew it was because it was Black History Month, and because of that, I soon stopped accepting invitations to preach in February, and I rarely ever do. It was just easier for my soul, but at this church that I now call home, I know that I can preach at any month because this church values my human beingness and not just the convenience of my hue in February. And for this, I am well pleased. <laughs> America. The United States, this country. With all of the images that these words evoke, we can probably all agree the ethos of America is not rooted in certain words. It is not rooted in words like care and compassion. It is not rooted in the words of concern and charity. It is the ethos of America is rooted in other words that begin with the letter C. Words like conquest, control, consumption. This posture of American control over the land and the people, all the people, all the land, America, are similar to the powerful, unmovable roots of an aspen tree. That's why I have a seven-year-old named Aspen, because I know these roots are unmovable. They have solid, strong, uncompromising roots that radiate out into all branches of our society, all connected, all intertwined, and all from the same controlling root. But there is a boil in that root. There's an irritant in that root. There is a bug in that root system that has persisted for centuries, that has poked at the conquest and the control and all of the narratives associated with those words. On this last weekend of Black History Month, I want us to look at America's greatest irritant the boil and the thorn of activated conscious black humanism. Black humanism is not just the philosophy of humanism of people who happen to be of African descent. It is a very distinct theological tradition that emerged from African American experience. Now think about it. When that which was considered inhuman makes itself human by declaration, it is an act of asserting humanism. 
when that which was considered unworthy of consideration, regard, feelings, or conscious dignity asserts selfhood, autonomy, and freedom is an active act of humanism. When that which was considered property unhinges itself from ownership to own themselves, this is a conscious recognition of humanism as a life source. Since its exception, the inception of the Atlantic slave trade, the degree of systemic violence that Western societies have perpetrated on African peoples is absolutely astonishing. It's really, it's just astonishing. No historical community has been more affected by or more aware of how the modern form of domination has been mediated by European conceptions of what it means to be a human being. Now, while there are many different types of and manifestos of humanism in both antiquity and modernity and contemporary life, essentially all of these manifestations emphasize the same things. That human beings, human potential, and human will can address human problems. It emphasizes our capacity for reason, critical thinking, scientific inquiry, and our ability to do good in the world. Humanism also implies the idea of a core, a core that is shared across cultures, it is transcultural, and it is transhistorical. African-American humanism shares human-centered emphasis just like other parts of humanism. However, there's a different rationale for this position based upon various forms of oppression and history that we've encountered. Now, black humanists, we're very clear. We're very clear-headed and recognize that we really need to motivate ourselves based upon the possibility of transformation as opposed to some sense of transformation being guaranteed to us by some higher divine power or some governmental system. As black humanists, many of us reject theism and we happily therefore avoid the pitfalls of redemptive suffering. Those theodicies don't work for us. Black humanism, atheism, agnosticism, and non-belief become an appropriate, reasonable, rational response to the problem of evil. Now, Africans on the continent and throughout the black diaspora have a rich tradition of humanist expressions, a rich tradition. African humanism, there's 67 different African humanist groups on the continent and throughout the diaspora, tons of humanist and free thought groups. Throughout all of those organizations and throughout history and antiquity, the philosophical position at the core of African-inspired humanism is respect for the human. 
The traditional values of hospitality, primacy of the person, respect for life, a sense of the sacred, familyhood, solidarity, and other characteristics feature the communalistic life of an African person. Consider the African philosophy of Mbutu, a concept in which one's sense of self is shaped not by relationship with God or the divine, but by relationships with other people. This is a core African principle. It is a way of living that begins with the premise, I am only because we are. I am because we are, Mbutu. Now, a deep dive into African traditional religious expressions will always feature the primacy of the human and human communities. Now, Professor Anthony Pinn, esteemed black humanist, writer, and friend of Unitarian Universalists, and friend of mine, he argues and he makes amazing arguments. He argues that black humanism has five basic principles, some of which it shares with humanism in general, but some are really, really unique. Let me connect some of those dots for you today. First principle, black humanism, he's, these are his constructs, black humanism, understands that humanity is fully responsible for the human condition and we are responsible for the correction of humanity's plight. Okay. Now what does this look like in our history? It looks like enslaved people who did not wait on God to set them free. Enslaved people did not wait on God to set them free. Enslaved Africans freed themselves every single day in ingenious ways. From those who fried cornmeal and scattered these crunchy little bits of balls along the trail to hush the puppies. That's where it comes from to hush the puppies that were chasing them. Freed themselves every day. To Henry Brown, who mailed himself, with the help of some white ally abolitionists, mailed himself in a crate from slavery in Virginia to freedom in Philadelphia. Mailed himself in a crate for 27 hours with a little peephole for air and got out of that crate and says, let's get to work to end this slavery. It was such a scandal. I mean, he became very famous, later moved to England, married an English woman, came back to the US during Reconstruction and became a magician. <laughs> Henry Box Brown, look him up. People were so worried about the mail system after that escapade. I'm serious, they, they, they created all new laws about how you would pack crates and how you had to look inside the crates because they were fearful 
that all these people would free themselves through the post office. Ingenious ways to create human dignity. Second principle, black humanism has a suspicion toward or rejection of supernatural explanations and claims. Okay, now what does that look like in history? In 1839, Reverend Daniel Payne, one of the leading figures of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church that freed itself from, from um, the Episcopal Church because they wouldn't let him sit in the regular pews, he worried so much, this, this pastor, that slaves were increasingly giving up on the Christian faith, which was a massive problem. He said the slaves are sensible of the oppression exercised by their masters, and they see these masters on the Lord's day worshiping in his holy sanctuary, and they know that oppression and slavery are inconsistent with the Christian religion, therefore they scoff at religion itself. They mock their masters, and they trust both the goodness and justice of God. Yes, I have known them to even question God's existence, he says. He tells a story. A few nights ago, between 10 and 11 o'clock, a runaway slave came to the house where I live for safety and succor. I asked him if he was a Christian. He immediately said, no, sir. He says, white men treat us so badly in Mississippi that we can't be Christians. Suspicion. Third principle. Black humanism has an appreciation for African-American culture on all the production, and it also has a respect for traditional forms of black religiosity as having cultural importance as opposed to cosmic authority. This is a critical distinction in black humanism. We remain in relationship with the black church. We don't scoff at it. We remain in relationship. What does that look like in history? It looks like respect for our ancestors and the intellectual pretzels that they had to turn themselves into to exist and to thrive and to function. It looks like the cultural production of literature from James Weldon Johnson, from Zora Neale Hurston, from Aretha Franklin and James Baldwin and Du Bois. It looks like the genius of a people that found freedom in the Bible meant to enslave them. Black humanists have respect for that intellectual journey finding freedom in the Egypt of Alabama. Black humanists is creating, humanism <coughs> is creating in culture inside of the black church. Black humanists are in the black church. A. Philip Randolph, a black humanist, Bayard Rustin, a black humanist, were in church with Martin Luther King planning the 63 March. Black humanism means that we can question hyper-optimistic religiosity with sarcasm and humor. 
and still get along with our relatives at the cookout. We can. We can sing J.T. Funny Paper Smith's song that says, you know it must be the devil I'm serving. I know it can't be Jesus Christ because I asked him to save me and look like he's trying to take my life. We can sing that at the cookout with our Baptist relatives and argue and pass the potato salad. We can sing hip hop songs, which brilliantly, brilliantly have been consistently since its inception, challenging to the neo-accommodationalism of religiosity in the black community. Hip hop has always challenged black religion. We can sing the song by Arrested Development that I love, and it says, when they want change, the preacher says shout it. When they want change, the preacher says shout it. Does shouting bring about change? I doubt it. All shouting does is make you lose your voice. <laughs> Again, we can do this and get along at the cookout because we know we need each other. Fourth principle. Black humanism has a commitment to individual and societal transformation. What does this look like in history? It looks like us creating, designing, and building communities. The first thing my relatives did out of slavery was go and find the rest of their relatives and build communities. That's social transformation. Not waiting on God to fix their problems, it looks like the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma. 600 businesses, luxury shops. The New York Times did a mock-up of what this town actually looked like in a three-dimensional thing. You've got to go online and look at it. It is phenomenal. They reconstructed every little location of that town. 600 businesses of luxury shops, restaurants, grocery stores, hotels, theaters, barbershops, and salons, pool halls, nightclubs, funeral homes, offices for doctors, lawyers, and dentists, also had its own schools, post office, bank, hospital, and jitney services, 36 square blocks with a population of 15,000. This is what social transformation looks like for a people just 53 years out of slavery. Just 50 some years out of slavery and look what they built. Black humanity was alive as well in Rosewood, Florida, where they were also self-sufficient. They had three churches, a school, a large Masonic hall, a turpentine mill, a sugarcane mill, a baseball team, two general scores, a village that had about two dozen two-story wooden plank homes, other small two-room homes, several small unoccupied plank farms and storage structures. Some families owned pianos and organs and other symbols of middle-class prosperity. Of course, like Tulsa, all burned to the ground by white mobs. Survivors of the Rosewood Massacre remember it as a happy place. The reason it was called Rosewood is that everyone planted roses in front of their homes. Black humanity was alive and well in Rondo, in St. Paul, 
It was alive and well in Central, here in South Minneapolis, until a new kind of massacre that used bulldozers instead of guns wiped out black self-determination and the businesses and social organizations that mark individual and social transformation. It happened here too. Same results, different strategies. Final principle. Anthony Penn says, black humanism, and this is what I love about him so much, he says, it is a controlled optimism that recognizes both human potential and human destructive activities. Think about that for a second while I drink this water, controlled optimism. What does that look like in history? What does that look like in history? Controlled optimism? In a 1968 interview on television, how many of you remember Dick Cavett? Come on now, yes, my boomers. Dick Cavett, who I adored, was a great interviewer. Go find this on YouTube. Dick Cavett interviewed James Baldwin, renowned author intellectual strategist. And he asked what many white people in 1968 were wondering and wanted to ask black people. And the question was, why aren't black people more optimistic? Even as they face systemic oppression, racism, blah-dee-da-dee-da, African Americans were making significant progress. That is, as Dick Cavett continued, he says, well, James Baldwin, um, blacks are mayors. They were in sports and politics. They are afforded the ultimate accolade, and he actually said this, of being in television commercials now. It is at once getting much better and hopeless for black America, or is it? Now, you don't mess with James Baldwin. James Baldwin eloquently and very cogently put it best regarding race, optimism, and the future of America. And he said, I am not a pessimist because I am alive. To be a pessimist, it means you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I am forced to be an optimist. I am forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. The future of black people, Baldwin continues, is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives whether or not they will deal with and embrace the stranger they have maligned for so long. Controlled optimism. Friends, Unitarian Universalists have long history of black humanists among us. The list is illustrative. You can read about it, and you can dive into that history as far as you want to go. We are one of the first faiths to vigorously say black lives matter. 
The Black Lives Matter movement, with its desired goals of securing freedom, justice, equality, and human dignity for people of African descent in this country, have caused this country to have such cognitive dissonance. Oh my goodness, that every time these three little words are spoken, Someone has to say something to dismiss it, to diminish it, to squelch it, or to contradict those three little words. You use support of Black Lives Matter is part of the Black humanist tradition. Read about the Black humanist tradition in our tradition. Become informed. In this past decade, our growth of black humanists in this country has been considerable. The current head of the American Humanist Association is a black woman. As the kids say, Google it. One of the things I always love about Unitarian Universalism is that we have a lot of capacity. We got a lot of capacity and potential to transform the status quo. Richard Pryor had a joke, it just, this just came to me, this is ad-lib in here, okay, hold on. Richard Pryor had a joke about a, a heroin addict and an alcoholic. The alcoholic felt superior to the heroin addict, always felt superior. And he said to the heroin addict, he says, you know, son, you have potential. Potential is wide open. It's a very funny bit. But Potential always means there's more. And in that joke, Richard Pryor really, really meant that this human being had more. Unitarian Universalism has more. We have capacity and potential to transform the status quo. And we've done it a million times. It's not always realized with us, but we have that capacity. And the capacity does come with a certain amount of optimism and a certain amount of hope and some direction to do the work that's needed in these human bodies that we inhabit at this human moment. We're in an anti-human moment right now in our country. Our country has a posture that's anti-human. We're resisting, but the powerful, those who could control us have a posture that's anti-human. And the, the, the foes that we have, the enemies that I have, are anti-human. Putin is anti-human. Trump was anti-human. These people at CPAC this weekend, anti-human. Friends, I want you to remember, without any sentimentality, without any guilt, without any white fragility, and without any emotion, I want you to remember, without all of that emotion, that black people have been considered exempt from humanity largely because of a lack of imagination in this culture. Don't be sentimental about it, okay? Sure, you got fragility, go, all that stuff. Put that aside, just know that we have been systematically put in this category because of a lack of imagination. 
This lack of imagination has made it even harder for well-meaning white people to see black beings before them as more than a victim of the horror of the brutal enactments done to our spirits and bodies. I have felt often in my life, and I've traveled in many UU churches over these 26 years as a minister, and I've seen people look at me as if I am tragic. <laughs> I am just a tragedy, a victim. They don't see or embrace my joy. My genius, my black philosophical constructions, they don't see that. Not my genius, but black genius. I don't have genius. I live with a genius, Ashley, and my kids are geniuses, but overall. So friends, love and imagination may be the most revolutionary impulses available to us humans. And yet we have often failed to understand their importance and respect them as powerful tools to get us off this path of destruction. Love combined with imagination. As I prepare to take my seat, that's an old black church trope. That means I'm gonna speak for 25 more minutes. No, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. As I prepare to take my seat, I do this for you, Glenn Thomas. I do this, these little antics for you. <laughs> I know you do, I know you do. I know, I know, I know. We got, see, this is where the black church thing works. You know, the black humanists can make these black church jokes, and it's okay. It's all part of the thing. My ancestors, thank you, Ancestry.com, my ancestors have been in this country since 1634. And I believe that each day they woke with an impulse within them to imagine and resist. Imagine and resist. I look at the names in my family tree, these old names, 1750, Daniel Sears, 1720. Henrietta Grooms. I imagine Henrietta every day waking up imagining and maintaining, imagining and surviving, imagining and thriving under the most horrendous circumstances. The story of black humanism should not be seen through the lens of black misery and poverty and victimhood and oppression. It should seem, be seen through the lenses of fully recognized people with inherent worth and dignity. So that someday, on the last day of Black History Month, I don't have to say Black Lives Matter. It will be a given, period, full stop. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.